Your Partner in Success Radio is a free business podcast with host Denise Griffiths. It's all about great stories, conversation, and context to help you move your business and life forward with actionable tips and advice from her guest experts. To listen and subscribe, just find us on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you consume your podcasts. Welcome to your Partner in Success Radio. I'm your host, Denise Griffiths, and our topic today is important. We're talking about rehumanizing the workplace by future-proofing your organization while restoring hope, well-being, and performance. So imagine a world where everyone can come to work as their authentically human best selves. They feel fulfilled, supported, and cared for, and they have meaningful, purposeful work. And at the end of the day, they are able to bring their best selves home, be fully present with their loved ones, tend to their well-being, and replenish their well. So my guest today is Dr. Rosie Ward, and she says we have a humanity crisis on our hands. But the good news is that there's a revolution already underway where organizations are breaking the mold and finding success by honoring And that's important, that word, honoring what it means to be human and putting people first. Rosie, welcome to the podcast, and thank you for sending your book to me. It is in my hands as we speak. I love it. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited for our conversation. Me too. We just, (laughs) in our virtual green room, we were discussing, it's a difficult world right now. It's, I don't turn on the news because it makes me want to throw up. It really does. You know, you're aware of it wherever you are, but to me, watching the news just makes it that much worse. Yeah, I mean, my my heart just hurts for humanity right now, and so I'm right there with you. I know my husband will have the news on. It feels like constantly in the background, and I just keep walking past. I'm like, I can't. It's not that I don't want to be informed. Like, I can get a soundbite here or there, but it's just, it's yeah, it's almost overwhelming. I don't think it's healthy. That's just my no, personal no. observation. I cut cable oh, 10, 11 years ago, one of the best days of my life. I don't watch TV much anyway, but you know, I would have Fox News or some kind of news on, and I would realize that I was feeling sick. Yeah. I really well, was feeling sick. I, I don't doubt it. And you know what it reminds me of is if you think back, it feels like almost an eternity ago. But if you think back when COVID hit, right, and it was round the clock coverage of how many cases and, you know, and news conferences left and right as we were like smack dab in the beginning stages. And all mental health experts said, you've got to stop like having the coverage on in the background nonstop. It's not helpful. It's not healthy. You know, getting kind of just sucked in, you know, minute by minute coverage just doesn't help. It's one thing to be informed. It's another thing to kind of be sucked in. So anyway, this kind of reminds me of that in a totally different way. Um, Obviously, there are lots of people dying for a different reason, but, you know, it's be informed and whatever we can do our part, um, whatever that looks like. But then there's, we have to have boundaries. And I think, I think boundaries go beyond this, but as a to be effective and to be effective humans, we have to we have to know our limits and we have to be boundaried or we can get sucked under and it's just it's just not helpful for anybody. It's not. And you know when I first realized this was nine eleven. Mm, yeah. Uh, it, I, I will never forget that. And I remember sitting on my window seat for two solid days just weeping and I had my cat he's he was 18 when he passed away some years ago but his name was Sawyer you little bastard Griffiths that was his best <laughs> <part of record. laughs> 
I have this problem with ginger cats. I always find the ones that are just insane and they come live with me. But he was tucked, he was 18 pound cat. He was almost 20 pounds. He was tucked up under my chin for two days. And I promise you, I mopped my eyes on him. And I remember my now former husband, the second day he he came home from work and he looked at me, he said, have you been watching that all day again? I said, yes. He said, is there anything new that you don't already know? And he was he was miffed. He was upset that I was just wallowing in it. And I said, no. He said, can you turn it off and leave it off? I said, yes. And I did. And that was a very valuable lesson for me because I didn't need to have it just crammed in my face all the time. I knew what happened. I, I had the facts. It was time yep. to let it be. Yep. Yep. Yeah. And it's it's process of grief and, um, yeah. and deal with the, all the emotions that come with it. But you know, you know, where we're sitting, what can we do? I mean, can, can we give money to reputable relief agencies? Absolutely. Can we do our part to, you know, not enable things? Yes. Can we, you know, there's a lot that we can do individually, but in the grand scheme of things, there's a lot we can't do. And so I think, again, I just go back to boundaries is are so critical. They are. And you talk about that in your book. You say we live and work in a world where disruption is the norm. And I don't know about you, but it seems like it's getting worse by the minute. So I try to, you know, get my facts, determine if they're really the facts, use my critical judgment skills and say, is that true? Is it not true? And then go about my business. But you're saying that there are positives that come with this disruption, but it also bumps us up against our core human DNA, which is what you were just talking about, I think. Who are we and how do we help and how do we create those healthy boundaries for ourselves? Yeah, for sure. You know, when you were talking about getting information, it reminds me of there's a saying that Brene Brown always says of, you know, when you're looking at some disrupt disruption or challenging situations, it's one, do I have enough information to freak out? Right. Because sometimes we have this emotional response, emotional reaction. We start freaking out. But it's like, do I actually have enough information to freak out? And then two, if so, will freaking out actually be helpful here? <laughs> right? No, uh, I right? never and, is. Right? And so those are like filter questions when we're having that that emotional response. But some, I want to I want to circle back to this idea that, uh, you know, yes, we are in a world where disruption is the norm. And here's here's what I have learned that I have found. It seems so elementary but it's super helpful. And um, again, going back to Brene Brown and others, what we have continuous, continuously learned from ongoing research that fabulous people do and put out in the world, thank goodness, is that you know, as human beings, we are meaning-making creatures. We make meaning from our experiences through language, and that language usually translates into stories and narratives. And so when we don't have the right language or don't have any language to process what we're experiencing, it makes it nearly impossible to like understand and be able to find a path forward. And, and we end up kind of stuck. And so we give that language in our book and it's not ours. It comes from the army war college. It's been around forever. I think practically any, any uh, Harvard business review article or others, you'll hear them refer to VUCA volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. And why we keep going back to that acronym is that, it's one thing to say, yeah, disruption is the new norm, but it's be able to go, oh, VUCA, like to have language and almost be able to name it. Like when we can name something, it doesn't have as much power over us. It kind of puts us back in the driver's seat. So, you know, when my computer crashed like a few weeks ago and I had to do all this data recovery, I just laugh and I go, VUCA, right? <laughs> or something, because it's just like, it gives you a way to 
put a little bit of levity to it, but also to kind of understand. And so with that disruption, yeah, there are great things. Like that's where we have innovations in medical breakthroughs and technological breakthroughs and like the, the surgence of green technologies. And there's so many great things that come from disruption, right? As we learn more, as we grow as a species, as there's advancements in our world um, that can help us be better and be more effective. But as you said, it does bump us up against our DNA. And what I mean by that is that as human beings, we are literally like neurologically programmed to seek out familiarity and to seek out comfort. And why that is helpful to know, it's problematic because the VUCA world actually demands that we're able to flex, adapt, lean into the disruption, be okay with uncertainty, but our brains are like, no, 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 no. And so if we don't reconcile the gap between kind of what our own innate human biology or DNA has us wanting to do, which is to stay safe, to cling tightly to what's familiar, to kind of do what we've always done, and the more chaotic our world gets, the more we kind of want to self-protect and cling tightly because it's like, I don't know what's happening, but this part of my life I can control or this part of my life feels certain. And so what ends up happening is we double down on our stories, even if they're not correct and we don't check them out. We double down on judgment. We double down on righteousness when what we need to be doing is leaning into the discomfort and being more curious, being more open, and being more connected. And so that's really the opportunity, but we have to recognize the challenges because it's not, it's skills that a lot of us haven't learned and it goes against like what everything in our being wants to do, but it's the necessary path forward. And I completely understand that. And when I I was reading, I think it was the first chapter and came across VUCA and I went, what? Because I thought I knew a lot of acronyms. I have one. It's called a PEBCAC. And anybody wants to know what a PEPCAC is, it's problem exists between keyboard and chair. It's your fault. So <laughs> I love it. I love it. I use it a lot. I'm a you know computer science nerd, and I love these. So I looked at that, and I went, okay. And I had to do some really kind of a deep dive into your book to find out what that was, how I could operate with it. And it made total sense to me, I have to say, because, you know, we like to think that we're communicating well, even with ourselves, which honestly, I don't think we communicate well with ourselves for the most part. You know, we have all our boxes to get through and our judgments to get through and, you know, our crankiness. There's just so many things that have us going, I don't want to do this work right now. I mean, but we have to. If we're going to show up in the world, we have to take care of ourselves. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, what's so interesting when you talk about like the the language we use with ourselves, let alone with others, the language we use with ourselves, if we're not paying attention, right? And if like the VUCA world is triggering this innate need for self-protection that we all have, and we're not aware of it, where we can pause and choose differently when we're in reactive mode, when we're in autopilot mode, and you see it happening all over our world, what happens is the, the stories we tell ourselves and the language we use for ourselves, first and foremost, that collectively, we tend to be really nasty to ourselves. Like the things we say oh, to no ourselves kidding. and how hard we how are on ourselves, we would not, we would not, yeah, we would not yeah, say we that would to other people. And, um, and it's funny because I, um, like I will, you know, have some of my coaching clients, you know, write letters to their childhood self or ask them during a session to pull up a picture of themselves as a child. And I'm like, now say to that picture what you're saying to yourself right now, right? And they can't do it. It's like, we're just so nasty to ourselves. And so that's the first thing. And then in that narrative, we tell ourselves, 
we tell our, we've created all kinds of stories that justify us playing it safe and small, right? That justify us, like, I'm going to tap out of this conversation, or I'm not going to step up and say what I really think, or I'm not going to ask for help, or I'm not going to give this difficult feedback, or I'm not going to set boundaries, or I'm not going to say no, or I'm not going to lean into curiosity. I'm just going to sit here in judgment and dehumanize another group, or, you know, I mean, the list goes on and on and on. And when that narrative takes over and it happens all over the place, and you can example multiple times a day around you, on the TV, if you're watching it, um, on Facebook, social media, yeah, right, social everywhere. Media everywhere. Yeah, yeah, and it's just, it's so, it's so human, but it's so unproductive. And so the work that I do with individuals and teams, when we think about having a, a more human workplace, is we have to first of all recognize that this phenomenon is real, that it happens. We've got to start to build the skills to recognize when it's happening to us, own it, and then have tools in our toolbox, so to speak, to be able to choose differently so that we can lead and influence positive change around us. And that's personally and professionally. And that's really what I get passionate about in the work that I do every day, because I just feel like if we don't, our behaviors stem from our thinking, right? Our behaviors stem from the stories we tell ourselves. And so, you know, you go back to like taking care of ourselves. Well, you know what, whether it's food or exercise or sleep or a spiritual practice or finances or fill in the blank, we can't behave differently if we're if the narratives that we're holding and we're believing to be true are counterproductive to those behaviors. And so everyone wants a magic bullet, everyone wants a quick fix, but that there is there is no quick fix. And so we talk about one of the rehumanizing principles, we talk about weight in the messy middle. Like there isn't a fast forward button that if we're gonna grow and transform and be better versions of ourselves, we have to go through the middle of the mess. There is not a shortcut. There isn't a detour. And I think as human beings, we don't like that discomfort. So then again, we jump into judgment. We jump into righteousness. We jump into all kinds of unproductive behaviors um, that help us numb, that help us not have to feel, that help us stay disconnected from others because it's too scary. I mean, there's just all kinds of stuff. So there's just such an opportunity um, for us to show up differently. And I think the world keeps presenting opportunities in our face in a very blatant way of why humanity matters and why we can't, we can't keep going like we've always gone. No, we can't. And when you're talking, when you were talking earlier about, you know, the things that we say to ourselves, listen, I've said this before a lot here on this show. If anybody was silly enough to speak to me in a way I speak to myself, I'd bloody their nose right there in the Walmart parking lot. <laughs> I would need bail money. <laughs> right? We like can't you drop kick them or punch, throat punch them or something. Yes. Yeah. I would do something that required bail money, no question about it. <laughs> and we do it to ourselves. And I've learned over time to get very strict with myself. I don't know if that's the proper terminology, but when I catch myself falling back into an old, you know, kind of like you're rewinding this old narrative, yep. I will stop stand up and point my finger at my own nose and say, you go outside, we're going to have a talk. <laughs> I do. I take my, myself outside. It works because it breaks that narrative. I go outside, I breathe, I dig my, my toes into the dirt, the grass, and ground myself and change that narrative. And it does work. But you know what? Else? I'm listening to you very carefully. And the things that you're, we're talking about here, you know, all these really kind of awful things that we do to ourselves unwittingly, I suspect that as a, a global 
population, we're unhealthy because of the way we think. And yes, it's the way we eat. And yes, it's you know the lack of exercise. But it wearing you can wear your brain out, and that wears your body out too. Or am I just dead wrong? No, I I think there's a lot of merit in what you're saying, and I think that you know again when we when our narrative or story that we tell ourselves is full of armor to use Brene Brown's language when it's mm-hmm. full of nastiness when it's full of self-protection um, our behaviors follow and we have a we actually have a visual in the book we call the frame that like how we see things or the story we tell ourselves or our filters influences ultimately how we feel about things and ultimately what we do and so if we want to behave differently if we want to have different outcomes it's not trying to just give people skills to behave differently it's we we literally have to go back and do the messy work to rewire our thinking and rewire the, those stories and so like for example and you know if I view movement as it has to be torturous and awful, right? Well, I could force myself to go work out or go to the gym, but it's not going to last very long if I view it as awful. Or if I view it as punishing myself because I don't like my body, well, then every time I'm doing that, I'm punishing myself more versus I'm doing this because I love myself, right? And so, Mm -hmm. or if you go to like, I'm in a toxic relationship and I'm not setting boundaries, it's, you know, that I don't deserve better or I don't love myself or I'm not going to speak up here because it triggers my childhood self that got yelled at when I was a kid. I mean, as human beings, like it or not, those stories we tell ourselves are formed really early on. They're formed in our formative years, the first 15, 16 years of our life, because we make sense of our experiences. So like, let's say, let's say you're five, six years old and you know, you did something you weren't supposed to, which every kid does. And even if you were in a loving household, I never did. I never did. No, right. Yeah. Perfect. (laughs) Right. That's my story. Yeah. And granted, you know, right. So you could have the whole spectrum of someone who was in a really horrifically toxic um, traumatic, torturous people who were in a very loving home, but still like you get in trouble and whether your parents yell at you or punish you in whatever format, you create a rule of like, Oh, I'm bad. Or I need to be perfect in order to be loved. Or, you know, let's say you're in school and you raise your hand and you have the wrong answer and people laugh. Well, then maybe you create a narrative of I'm not going to speak up again because unless I absolutely know the answer, I'm not going to speak up again unless I know I'm right because people will laugh at me. Or let's say you didn't make the team or get picked for a play or, you know, something you were going for and you didn't, you didn't get it. Well, then you might create a narrative of, well, now I got to prove myself and I have to work extra hard. And now you create this thing of I'm not worthy as is I have to go above and beyond to prove myself or, you know, maybe your household was chaotic around you. Maybe you had a parent with a health issue, or maybe there were there was circumstances in your environment, like you grew up in a really um, challenging neighborhood, or you know you were in a, a war laden country, or something like that. You're going to create a narrative or something about the only way I can be safe is I have to control. I have to be in control, or things fall apart around me. And so you can see that it, it's inevitable. We all kind of start to create these self protective stories in childhood. And what we don't realize is that they start running the show in adulthood. And what happens is like those stories probably served us very well while we were growing up and maybe they did keep us safe. Maybe they were necessary because of what was going on in our life. But now we hit a point in adulthood where they come at a really great cost and they keep, they might help us feel safe, but they keep us small. They keep us from having the relationships we want to have. They keep us from feeling fulfilled and, you know, showing our, um, I always say my favorite color is sparkle. They keep us from showing our sparkle to the world or, you know, <laughs> letting our sparkle shine. Um, they, they, keep us, 
Yeah, right. They they keep us. Um, they just they they keep us from having the life we want to have in so many different ways, and we don't even realize it's happening. And so one of the things that when you talk about those stories or catching yourself that I that I will frequently say to my clients and the groups I work with is I'll just say, would you let your 10-year-old self drive your car? Or I'm working with surgeons, and I'll say, would you let your 10-year-old self operate on this person right now? And so why are you letting your 10-year-old self make your decisions, or why are you letting your 10-year-old self drive the show? So sometimes when we catch that narrative or catch that emotional response, we can pause and go, do I want adult version of me making the decision, the wiser adult version, or do I want the five-year-old version of me? And again, it's easier said than done, but having these ways to just start to recognize that we've created our experiences based off these stories, and there's work and tools that we can put in place to help us start to show up as a better version of us, more connected, more impactful than this scared five, 10-year-old version of us that that, you know, whatever happened in childhood, again, we could have a happy childhood and we still create these stories. Like, want to be really clear, you don't have to have a traumatic childhood because I coach a lot of really high performing, really incredible leaders who had a happy childhood and they still get in their own way. Like, this is a common human experience. Well, the, the truth is being human is exhausting. <laughs> and God, yeah. It is. I mean, I wander around my house talking to myself because I'm the smartest person in the house. I'm the smartest person in the room. There's nobody else here. I can get by with that. But then I'll catch myself, you know, whipping out one of those same old discounted debunk narratives, and I'll have to say, what the heck? What are you thinking? Where did that come from? You have disproven this to your own satisfaction over and over and over again. Why is it coming back? So you're saying that there are tools that we can use. So one of my tools, honestly, is I call it the open refrigerator door syndrome. When I'm having one of those, we all do it. You have a refrigerator. We all go to the kitchen. We open the door. We stick our head in there. We go blank. I can't meditate. I have a squirrel brain. Squirrel, it doesn't work for me. I've tried (laughs) everything you can imagine. My squirrel brain just takes over and... It could have been Thanksgiving a week ago, and I start making that Thanksgiving grocery list all over again, (laughs) or I fall over and drool. I just don't meditate. But I open the refrigerator door, and I have a double door uh, fridge, so I stick as much of myself in there as I can, close my eyes, and I just stop thinking. It's disruptive, and it Mm. helps. So try Mm -hmm. that open refrigerator door syndrome. I like it. I, I like it. Yeah, I, that, that's fantastic. And I think, that, um, I mean, so we talk about this in the book, like one of the, there's many different ways we can do this, but um, one of the t- tools that that I, I found to be super impactful and transformative on both a personal and professional level is a, a gift to the world that I always tell Bob Keegan and Lisa Leahy from Harvard, like they're just lovely human beings. And I always tell them, so grateful for them and their work, because it really is a gift. It's been a gift for me personally. It's been a gift for so many of my clients. And it's called immunity to change. And basically what it is, is it helps us identify an improvement goal, something we want to get better at that we can't just will ourselves to do. Like I want to be better at setting boundaries or I want to be better at speaking up promptly or I want to be better at listening more fully or I want to be better at delegating or you you can fill in the blank, right? Or I want to be um, better at self-care. And then you start to look at all of the ways that we get in our own way, like all the ways we're behaving that are counterproductive or contradict what we're, what our goal is. And then we really start to look at the yuck. We start to look at what is it you're ultimately afraid of? Like, oh my gosh, I'll appear selfish, or I won't be in control, or 
I won't be perfect or people won't like me or people won't respect me or I'll be seen as irresponsible. So we really start to get to the heart of what is at risk for you that makes it feel necessary to keep behaving in the way you're behaving. And people just have this, and what, it, what they call it is your psychological immune system, just like our physical immune system is like working unconsciously, right, to protect us. And sometimes we get sick and, right, like diseases and bacteria get through. But we also know that sometimes our immune system goes haywire. So think about like anyone with an autoimmune disease knows what you're talking about. Your body is attacking itself. Or I like to say, think about someone who needs an organ transplant. That organ is like a goal that is like the utmost important, right? It's you, it, you need it to live. But what happens? The body wants to reject it because it views it as a threat. It views it as, oh my gosh, danger, danger, Will Robinson. And so then there's all these anti-rejection meds and there's all this attention to like helping the body not fight, right? The immune system not attack this. Well, on a psychological level, this is happening to all of us where we have these unconscious commitments that our brain is holding in the interest of self-preservation and self-protection, that our brains, whether we realize it or not, spend an enormous amount of energy to make sure that those fears that we have never see the light of day. And so when we start to reveal this for people, they start to realize why they keep acting in the same way. And and it's like having one foot on the gas, one foot on the brake. The harder I try to push myself to whatever it is, like push myself to set boundaries or push myself to, um, to speak up more or push myself to let go of control or whatever the heck it is, the harder that that unconscious self-protective mechanism kicks in because it says, oh, no, 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 you don't, not safe. And so what we do is we kind of help people reveal like, oh my gosh, this is what your psychological immune system is. And, and I'll say to them, are you beginning to see it at play? And they're like, yeah, I am. And then the beautiful thing is then we start to go, what is that underlying assumption or narrative or filter you have about reality and how the world works that makes it feel necessary to like have these self-protective commitments. And then we start going through a very series of methodical exercises that basically helps rewire them, helps them see you created these narratives in childhood. You're not 5, 10, 15 years old anymore. They start to really look at what are the costs when these assumptions are in the driver's seat. Um, What opens up for you when they're not? We start to kind of very safely test the waters and kind of like Swiss cheese poke holes in the validity of those stories. And then they start to like um, let go of it. And it's just pretty transformative. So, I mean, that's a very like detailed methodical way that, um, that works. I mean, what I found is it's really hard for you to do this on your own um, because we do get in our own way, but there are things that we still could start. Like um, uh, uh, when we look at like our self-limiting beliefs and there's great work out there by, um, oh my gosh, my brain is not working. Uh, Katie Byron, or you look at even, um, I love Katie you know, Byron. Is yeah. It true? Right. Like, is it really? Yeah. Look, yeah. Asked yeah looking at those self-limiting. Yeah. And we, and we can start to look at what are some of those, what are some of those constant consistent stories? Like, you know, I'm not tall enough or I'm not thin enough or I'm not female or male enough, or I'm not white enough or brown enough or tall enough or, you know, whatever our lack of what we think we're not enough at, or, if I want it right, I have to do it done right. I have to do it myself. Or if I ask for help, I'm weak. Like start to identify what are those actual narratives and then start trying on, well, what's a different one? So like if you have a narrative that is, let's say, um, I have to do it myself, right? Well, what if like, I've had that one? Uh, yeah, look, I, yeah. I almost ran my business into the ground because of that attitude. Yeah. So, yeah. so I was what if you yeah. So what if you tried on a different story that was something like that um, uh, when I do it myself, I'm robbing other people 
of an opportunity to contribute, or I'm robbing other people of an opportunity to learn and grow, or you know what, other people might be able to do it better than me, and that's okay, then my gifts and talents can be used for other things. Or, you know, what if, you know, you say, well, if I asking for help means I'm weak, of like others like to feel connected and contribute, so why do I think this is any different? So you can start to really like, so the first step is literally you got to identify what those self-limiting narratives are. And then the second is try out a few different ones, just writing them and then believing them is a different story, but you have to like start, okay, when this story comes and I'm going to try on this one instead and see what happens. And maybe you find out that one isn't quite impactful enough, try a different story. So you can start by really um, leveraging that work and that can also be super helpful. And see, I love what you said about it's difficult when you say you're going to do something, but you haven't set any tools in play. There's no motions. And I'll be honest with you, the minute I tell myself, you are going to go do this, Denise, my subconscious or my inner child says, you're not the boss of me, and that's the end of that. (laughs) (laughs) I'm a difficult person to be around even by myself. (laughs) But I love it. Well, but, but, it, but really it is. I mean, if you look at, oh my gosh, you could look at all the motivation research and stuff. It's that we, we do. I mean, we want to think for ourselves. So if we feel like someone's forcing us or whatever, like we will dig our heels in like we're three and you know, you're not the boss of me, have a temper tantrum. But it's really the same thing when we're trying to force ourselves to do something, even if we really want it, even if it's like it's so important to us to be better at this. What we don't realize is happening is subconsciously it is like that you're not the boss of me but it's really about like our brains like my job is to protect you my job is to protect right. you from danger just like our physical immune system so if our psychological immune system its job is to protect us and so until we start to heal that faulty immune system just like right with people who have autoimmune diseases or the organ transplant like right there's things to do to help kind of remedy or heal or, you know, um, so that that the body stops attacking itself. It's the same thing. We have to do that work and it's not quick. It's not easy. It's messy. It's uncomfortable, but oh my God, it's so transformative and it's so necessary. And here's the other thing I will say, it's not just about us getting out of our own way. If we go back to this idea of a VUCA world, and this is again, the work from Bob Keegan and Lisa Leahy, they talk about that In this VUCA world, it is not just demanding that we can adapt. It's actually, if you think about it, demanding a higher level of mental complexity from us. It's demanding that we can be authors of our own journey, that we can think creatively, that we can do all these things. And a lot of us, when we're stuck in our five or 10-year-old self, we actually can't. And so there's a great quote in their book, Immunity to Change, that something like when we're experiencing the world is too complex, it's really a mismatch between our own mental cognitive development level and what the world is demanding. And we really, we can either expect the world is going to be less complex, which we know is not going to happen, or we can no. work to basically upgrade, right? Our upgrade and elevate our own mental complexity. And so when we do this inner work, it actually, it, it's basically upgrading that inner operating system, if you will. It's upgrading our level of mental complexity. It's upgrading our ability to be able to meet the demands of a VUCA world. So it's not just about us. It has two, it has twofold uh, benefits. It's not just about us being a better version of us and having a more fulfilled life, but it's really about if we're going to show up in this VUCA world in an effective way, the world is demanding of it. And here's the thing I think about getting back to like the rehumanizing workplaces is, so now picture you throw a bunch of us together in a workplace, 
in a community, in a neighborhood, on a team, and everybody unconsciously is showing up in this triggered self-protective state that they don't realize it and doubling down on their rightness and trying to solve a problem together, innovate together, move an initiative forward, and we wonder why we have the issues we have. Well, after listening to you, I don't wonder at all. And I mean, this makes absolute sense to me. And, you know, you've mentioned lung transplant or transplants before. My brother just passed a week or two ago. He was, well, he had a double lung transplant, but he got eight more years of life. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't easy and it was messy and it was difficult. And he was grateful and thankful. And he did all the work, you know, the millions of dollars that were spent on him over the years was worth it. Yeah. Yeah. But, and that's you know, what I hear from so many. You, oh, you, go ahead. It's transformative. You have to change. You have to change. And he knew when he woke up and said, oh, he had no idea. He really went to the hospital to die. And when he woke up, he was startled beyond belief. But it did, we don't know how it changed his his view on life, but it did. It, I, maybe it, because it was such a violent change. Because you know that kind of surgery is violent. It's hard on your body. Yeah. But he did. He did change, and he did grow. He was funny. I mean, I got him a Scot. I made him a Scottish laird. You know those little. Uh, you can go to those websites and buy a square inch of Scottish land. Or, or, you know, he was a lord. So when he would go to the hospital, he would tell people, "You may call me Lord Ass." We're a funny family. <laughs> That's fantastic. I'll tell you, he never lost sense of who he was, and he became a much better, stronger, really interesting person as a result of almost dying and having, I guess my point that I'm trying to make is having to give up all of those old preconceptions and those old hurts and, you know, animosities. He just had to shove them away, and he did. And sometimes it takes that kind of, Violence. And I know that's the wrong word, but it is. I mean, surgery is tough on you. It's not they're cutting you open, but it, it was life changing, literally. And I'm not being facetious about that. It changed all of us. We all had to stop and think, "What's okay? That could have been a funeral." Yeah. Instead, it's well, not. So. Well, and you know, in the interest of you know us starting out, how powerful language is. Maybe rather than you know it was it was so violent it's, it was it was an awakening right I mean it was, wake up and it's very much yep and and so looking at wow like you know there's the various things that happen to us in life so even like you look at um, you know when you look at so I live in Minneapolis and so you know go fat, rewind two years ago when George Floyd was murdered and I think that was um, like a tipping point of awakening in this country about you know systemic racism issues and about just inequities in, in just social justice, right? That that sparked something. And and then you look at what's happening in, you know, Ukraine and it is yeah. it is an awakening of, you know, behavior that has been ignored for a long time or it's awakening of, oh my gosh, like, you know, these could be our sisters or brothers. And so like there's these things that are horrible, horrible. And they can awaken us. But to your point, you know, you said, so, oh, my gosh, you could have been at a funeral. How often, like speaking of funerals, so let's say how often 
does someone pass away, whether it was sudden and unexpected or, you know, a long-term illness, that people have brief, and I mean brief, moments of clarity of, oh, it puts into perspective, right? Or you look at what's happening in Ukraine right now, or you look at what's been happening in our world, whether it's COVID or whether it's, you know, these, these um, murders of our, our, our colored friends, right? Like, whatever it is, there's moments of, oh, you know, hug your kids a little tighter or puts, puts into perspective what's important. But then what happens? An hour later, hour later a day later, later, a week later, right we go right back into our comfort zone because mm-hmm. we haven't really done the work that is required to truly rewire our thinking to show up differently. It's like that moment of clarity and then, oh, yep, it goes away. And then we have another thing that happens and another moment of clarity, but we keep repeating the same behaviors until we do the intentional work to disrupt that. Well, let's talk about the intentional work because, look, I get just from watching my own self wander around and bang my head on the cupboard, it seems like, Denise, what the heck? (laughs) You know, I, I get that we have to do the work. And, you know, I've heard a lot, of, and I'm in a couple of masterminds, and we're doing the work. We're doing whatever we can to be better people, better business people, better friends, you know, better family members. We're trying to get out of our own way, and we know that that's what we're doing. But we also, and this is important because I had to figure out that I needed to make a system, put in the time, have set dates, set time. So I have to show up mm-hmm. no matter what my mood is, no matter how cranky I may be, doesn't matter. I have to show up because other people are expecting me to be there, but I expect me to be there. So you have to be kind of systematic about it, don't you? Yeah, yeah, you do. And I think, you know, there isn't a one size fits all. There's so many different great uh, bodies of work out there that can, can help. So like, obviously if someone's got a lot of uh, emotional challenges and, and trauma, right, they need, they're going to need mental health support in, in before or in addition to whatever else. Um, when we're looking at getting of our own way, finding a good high quality coach, um, usually we can't do this by ourselves. We are, we are social beings. We are neurologically hardwired to be in connection with other people. And so if we think that, you know, what is that saying? Um, It's always a quote that I don't know if Albert Einstein really said it, but it's something like the thinking that got you here isn't the thinking that's going to get you there. So, so, so yeah. So if we think that, you know, we can do this completely on our own, um, we're, we're really kind of fooling ourselves. Right. And so whether it's like you getting in a mastermind group or a coaching group, or, you know, like we, um, we launched, uh, we launched a courageous leadership program last fall and we have a couple coming up this year. That's really an opportunity for people to do their own work, but then also be in community, right. With others and have ongoing sustainability to do this work. Um, there's the dare to lead program. So, um, we, we bring that in, but you know what, uh, like Brene Brown, there's a lot of different facilitators around. Brene Brown has great resources on her website. You could look at, um, you know, Byron Katie's limiting beliefs. You could look at, um, you know, Mark Brackett's work with, uh, helping us be more emotionally aware and emotionally intelligent so that we can name our feelings and process through them. Like there's, um, there's the immunity to change work. So there's a lot of different avenues that people can find what's a fit for them to really look at how do I start this journey and make no mistake. This is not like a, Oh, I did work for three months. Check the box. I'm done. Like I've been immersed in this for 20 years and I'm a work in progress. Like this is an ongoing lifelong 
um, it might look different at different stages of the type of work you do or the support you do, but make no mistake, like we are constantly having to uh, work on ourselves because it's just, we're complicated human beings. Exactly. And I'm going to, I mentioned this at the top of the show, turn off the news, turn off the TV. There are studies done, but, you know, sitting in front of a television does to your body and your fanny, it gets big and wide. But (laughs) And you're eating garbage and you're just kind of self-medicating, I would think. But if you really, really want to do something different in your life, turn off these external and oftentimes nasty programs that you're watching and, you know, things that you're engaging in that allow you to not think, to not go deep, to not to not do anything different. You're self medicating as far as I'm concerned. And it's not a good yeah. thing. Yeah. Yeah, you're 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 numbing and, and kind of tapping out yes, of, um, that's of, of having to feel, right? And so like if you think about someone who this is a an I guess not extreme isn't the right word, but you know, you think about like when you've had a loss, like you have with your brother, like if we, if we don't let ourselves grieve and here's the thing, grief can be a loss of life. Grief can be a loss of a job. Grief can be a loss of, you know, a relationship. Grief can be a loss of, you know, a, a, a way of living that, that we held dear and true. Right. So grief comes in all kinds of form, but when we don't let ourselves feel that grief and process it and, find ways through it. We just like stuff it down. So either we just, it comes up and we distract ourselves. So it could be we distract ourselves with work or, you know, um, we, we numb with substances or whatever it is. Like that's not benign. Like unfelt feelings are not unprocessed feelings are not benign, right? They will come back um, gangbusters. And so, so I think like with what's going on in the world, like I can sit here and let myself feel grief. Um, I, I saw a video clip recently, just in the last week, it was uh, old, like several years ago, it was um, one of like the golden buzzer moments of America's Got Talent. It was some lit, lit up dance troupe. And I was like, oh my God, this is so cool. And I was totally in it. And then they get done and they said, um, hey, where are you from? And the, the guy said, Ukraine. And I just started crying and I had to shut it off. Oh, and it was like, and it was right. Like, and so I'm like, it's, it's not like, that I'm not letting myself feel this stuff, but I don't have to get sucked in. Right. And so it's like, you got, like I said, I go back to boundaries. You have to find that, um, let yourself experience the emotions that come up, but also wallowing in them or not um, just, yeah, sitting in them isn't helpful either. It's not. And I found that out, you know, 9-11, I'll never forget that moment because, I mean, all I could do, and I'm not a crier. I'm really not. I cried. I probably dehydrated myself. I cried. I sobbed. I rubbed my face all over poor Sawyer, and he took it. He was a, he was my boy. But when my my former husband said, "Do you have all of the information you need? Has there been anything new in the last twelve hours?" No. Then what are you doing? Yeah, it's a good question. Yep. It's a very good question, and it stuck with me all this time. Okay, I wanted we. This is fascinating. I'm probably going to have to get you to come back because I have so many questions. <laughs> but, see, I love it. Let's, I do it. it. Let's do it. Okay, good. <laughs> and see, I did it on the radio, so you can't tell me no. I'm tricky that way. <laughs> but you, you, in your book, you talk about there are five rehumanizing principles that we can leverage, and they're going to transform workplaces, communities, and teams. And I'm assuming that those, that starts with us as the individual, and then we work with other people to create these, you know, transformations but let's talk about those a bit yeah so one of the things that that uh has 
was an eye opener for me. So our book came out right at the start of the pandemic and the focus of the book and these rehumanizing principles is about transforming workplaces. But with what you just shared as the tee up, what became an aha as, as the book came out and people were reading it is that they said it was so relevant and timely and that these rehumanizing principles were not just for workplaces, that they were for, they were for individuals, but also for teams, for families, for communities. And I was like, oh, I guess it makes sense, right? So yeah, because we're all, we're all individual part of a bigger collective. It has to start with us. Yeah, absolutely. And, and so, so I look at it from two vantage points, like, again, organizational team or individual. So the first rehumanizing principle is we, what we call build a lighthouse. And if you think about what does a lighthouse do, it cuts through the fog, right? It shines a light when there's rough choppy waters like where does the ship go it helps provide that sense of oh okay i'm headed in the right direction or i can see land or i can see a path to go and so we use that as a metaphor to really look at two things one as on an organizational and individual level have you truly truly articulated your purpose like right like what we all have an individual purpose like why why are we here like mine is to foster moments of insights for people so they can break past barriers and step into their greatness. So I can, there's a lot of ways I can do that. I can do that through podcast conversations like this. I can do that through my blog. I can do that through my consulting. I can do that through my coaching. I can do that through my writing. Like there's a lot of different ways that I can nurture that purpose. But I, now I have that filter of what do I say yes to? What do I say no to? Even in my individual interactions, is this an opportunity for me to really, um, you know, help other people, you know, shine basically. Right. Um, And so with that in mind on an organizational level, again, do you have that clarity of purpose where people, I mean, there's this huge movement in the rise of social enterprise and socially responsible companies. Like people want to be part of a company that has a clear sense of purpose that is trying to have a better, better impact in the world and your products and your services help you serve that purpose. But that's not why you're in business, right? You're not in business to make profit. You're not in like profit is a fuel that helps you further that purpose. So it's doing the work to be really, really clear about the purpose. And then right in sidestep with it is you have to, clarify and operationalize your core values. And what I mean by that is you can't just have words on a wall or words that you've put next to your computer. You have to translate them into behavioral guideposts. Like when I say this is my value, like one of my values is make a difference. I have identified a handful of behaviors that personify that, that tell me I'm operating in alignment with that value and I know behaviors that tell me I'm operating out of alignment and I kind of know the early warning signs that I'm getting pulled out of alignment. So they act as my guidepost. And on an organizational level, it's the same thing. It doesn't do any good, for example, to have a generic value of respect. Well, okay, well, what does that mean for your organization? Well, it means that we listen to understand, that we assume positive intent, you know, whatever it is, and this is how we're out of alignment. So are we actually living it? Are we using them as behavioral guideposts? Are we holding ourselves and others accountable? And so that the, the way I look at it is it's like the, the base of the lighthouse are our values, right? That's what grounds us. That's what helps us know how to show up when things are tough. And then the purpose is the light of the lighthouse that is kind of shining the path forward, right? They go hand in hand. The lighthouse would not work. That purpose would not reach very far without the base of the values, right? So, that, so that's what that first principle is that we can use. And I know what I want you to come back and talk about. I, I already wrote it down, so I'm going to give you okay, good. it to you right now. What is our purpose? 
like half the time, yeah. I don't know what my purpose is. I wander around asking myself, why am I here? What am mm-hmm. I supposed to be doing? What is my real purpose? Rosie, I don't think I know what it is. Mm-hmm. I really don't. Well, you know, I, so, I mean, I don't know. I don't, I don't know you that well, but here's what I tell people as a starting point. One, there is a really cool assessment that you can take through the Y Institute that, um, that, that helps you kind of get clear of it. But here's what I would say, and this is what I tell people is start asking people who know you um, and really say like, when I'm showing up as my best, um, what, what am I contributing to you, right? Or asking what are qualities about me that you appreciate? And what, you're, what you'll start to find is, you know, that you, like for me, I started to hear things like, well, you inspire me or you help me get out of my own way or you help me think differently or you always have a different perspective, right? So you start, you'll start to hear like kind of common patterns of really looking at like, what are you contributing to the world? Um, and then, and what are the actions that you take when you're doing that, right? Like what, what, and, 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 so, and, so, and so I would and so, say um, a really great book that you could get that actually kind of gives you this formula is Find Your Why, which was the, the, the follow-up from, uh, from um, Start With Why from Simon Sinek. Find Your Why actually Simon Sinek. gives you. I have yeah. the one. I don't have the other. I just wrote it down. Yeah. So, so, so that would be a starting point. But, yeah, we could have a whole conversation um, about that and then how do you actually – so it's one thing to articulate and get clear, but then how do you actually live it? So, yeah, that could be a whole conversation. But, yeah, so that's the first rehumanizing principle, which there's a lot in that. But, again, if we don't have something to guide our way, um, it's easy to get hooked and, and be reactive. And so all of these rehumanizing principles build off of each other and are interrelated. So the second one is what we call um, create fearless environments. And this is really based off the work of Amy Edmondson and others around psychological safety. And that if we don't feel um, that it's safe to show up and share our ideas or be authentic or, you know, speak up when things are hard or whatever it is that we don't know if people are going to judge us or retaliate against us or whatever, it's really, really hard to, to be effective. And so it's looking at, are we creating those psychologically safe environments where people can um, show up and be authentically human and there's there's many different things that we can do um, to support that but that's really the essence behind the second rehumanizing principle which then feeds into the third which is what we've been talking about which is weight in the messy middle and that's recognizing that there isn't that fast forward button and it's really hard to give ourselves permission to lean into that discomfort or that messy middle if we don't have a fearless or safe environment to do so. And it also can be hard or easier to tap out of that messy middle if we don't have that clarity of that lighthouse of where we're going. Cause that lighthouse can provide kind of passion and energy to keep going, even when things are tough in that messy middle. So you can see kind of how they, they, they intertwine. So in the messy middle, we give a lot of the tools that you and I have been talking about of what are some of the things we can do to start to really challenge those self-limiting narratives to really do that inner work that is so, so necessary for us to thrive and really meet the demands that a VUCA world is asking of us. And then that gets me into uh, the fourth rehumanizing principle, which is one of my favorites and the, the title of my podcast, which is called Show Up as a Leader. And it's really the premise that um, leadership is not a title or a role. Leadership is really about behaviors. And we actually define leadership as maximizing our positive impact on the world. 
fully authentic self and supporting those around us to break past barriers and step into the great, their greatness. So there's a self component. Am I doing that messy middle work to become my best fully authentic self? And am I kind of creating those fearless environments around me and calling others to greatness? And so if we think about what's going on in the world um, and, and the VUCA-ness that just keeps getting almost VUCA to the extreme, we need everybody to start to show up as a leader in their life, personally and professionally, even if you don't have the title or role. Like, how can I maximize my positive impact here? How can I make a difference in this conversation, in this interaction, in this meeting, in this fill in the blank? Um, and, and we're not going to have the change that we want to see if people are sitting back going, not my problem. I'm tapping out. I need someone else more qualified or what, like, we really need everybody to start to show up. And so, again, using some of the tools to wait in the messy middle can help us better show up as that leader, which then gets us into the last rehumanizing principle, which is find your tribe. And this is not meaning go find people who are like you in tribalism, right, and hang out safe and kind of commiserate. This is going back to the origins of the word tribe, of a, a community of people who have each other's back. So in this, we talk about the fact we are neurobiologically hardwired to be in connection. We are social beings. And so this is about seeking out people who are different than you. This is about building community. This is about building relationships. And that really um, one person isn't responsible for the culture of the organization or the culture of a team. It's everybody's responsibility. And so change happens in, in community and in connection with others. And so really that, so this is where, you know, diversity and equity, inclusion and belonging and strength and relationships all come into play. And so those are the five rehumanizing principles. And so um, in the book, what we try to do is we weave those through the whole book. And then at the end of each chapter, we give um, like, here are things you can do at this section of this framework to show up as a leader. And so we try to give really tactical things that anybody can do regardless of their title or role to lead and influence positive change. Well, and you know what I'm hearing is that we need to be constantly aware and not flinch away from something that messy metal, you know, well, I'm yeah. going to be waiting yeah. around in there this weekend. I'll be calling you. It's like, okay, <laughs> now look. <laughs> oh, You're like, damn it, look what you did. No, <laughs> you ruined my weekend. <laughs> like, you know, entrepreneur who has weekends. <laughs> Exactly. But but the thing is, we do flinch away. I do it all the time. But I catch myself at it, which is a good thing. Now, am I going to stop and say, oh, are you going to deal with this right now, Denise? You're going to deal with it later? There is no later. Do it right then. But you have to be aware and you have to talk with yourself. And I'm going, not going to say push yourself because you're not the boss of me, but you do have to have these conversations with yourself that say, is this important to me? Can I live in this part of the messy middle for right now? What do I need to change at this moment? Which means we're constantly having conversations with ourselves, and I don't think that's a bad thing. Don't do it in public, though, in the grocery store. <laughs> People will look at you like you're crazy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Unless you have a phone in front of you, you're pretending to be talking to somebody else. But you know, you have to constantly. What I'm hearing from you is you have to, awareness starts with us and then we have to make those difficult messy sometimes hard or sometimes just really instant decisions to make a left or make a right or go forward or just sit down we have to make decisions all the time yeah 
We do. And here's the thing is I want to be really, really clear that like if we're in the middle of that mess and, you know, we're feeling difficult feelings, this is not about, you know, suck it up and plow through. Sometimes your point, you need to just sit down and go, I need to give myself permission to feel this grief, this anguish, this anger, this sadness, right? Um, But it doesn't mean I have to take it out on other people. There's a great saying that says like hurt people hurt other people. So if I'm in the middle of ickiness, I need to like let my, I need to give myself permission to be there. And then when like, you know, it's kind of like you let yourself feel it and then I go, okay, now, you know, what do I want to do with it? And so like one of the things that I will say all the time, and I think we say this in the book is like when we're in that triggered, upset, hijacked place, that is not a time we want to make major decisions about our life, about our business. That is not a time when we want to make major purchases. And it's also not a time we want to have really important critical conversations. You know, the old saying, you know, don't go to bed mad. Well, sometimes, you know what, because when we're in that hijack doubling down on our rightness, that's, that's where we're not going to find a win-win. That's not where we're going to have collaboration and connection. That's where we're just going to further disconnection and resentment and a mess that we may or may not be able to clean up later. And it really doesn't impact you physically. I mean, when I get to that point, thank goodness it doesn't happen that much anymore because I'm aware of it and, you know, I'm not around people that trigger me or I allow to trigger me. <laughs> just yeah. your cat. Just your cat. Yeah. yeah, just my cat. But but the thing is, when I get to that point, and like I've shared with you, you know, a week or so ago, I had a heck of a migraine just pop out of nowhere. And I don't get them often, but they will lay me out. I mean, just I pass out. The pain is so mm-hmm. intense that I literally will, will pass out. And I always have to have a bucket near the bed so I can throw up when I do move and turn my head because that's the next step. It's been lingering, not that the migraine that went away, but I've had a headache on and off for about a week or so. And I finally, when I was reading your book this past weekend, I went, oh, you did this to yourself, you moron. That's Reba McIntyre, by the way. <laughs> but you know, it's just, I, I started having big talks with myself. Yeah, you had a migraine. Yeah, you've got a continuing bit of a headache because you're internalizing a lot of really icky stuff. And I yep. have to have talks yep. with myself. I'm still, they're ongoing. I'm calling you this weekend. I'm telling you, be by the phone. <laughs> <laughs> I'm right. our, bo- our, our bodies, our bodies, our bodies tend to manifest what's going on internally in our mind for sure. Yeah. They do. My grandmother, bless her, she, she was a, a woman of very few words, but she, when she would talk or say something, it was always very pithy. And I remember one time we were sitting, I think, on a bench in a park or something, and there was just desperately unhappy woman in another bench and we both I kept looking at her my grandmother didn't stare but I was young and stupid and I was staring at this woman and I said why does she look like that she said honey there is a point in your life where if you are chronically unhappy it is going to show in your your face and you can't avoid it now we call it resting bitch face she didn't call it that (laughs) yeah I you know now if I catch my my you know, the corners of my mouth turning down. I'm all by myself. I'm walking around and I can feel the corners of my mouth turning down because of the thoughts that I'm having. Oh no. Open refrigerator door syndrome. I stick my I move my lips back up and I'm happy again. You have to be aware is my point. Yep, yep, for sure. For sure. Okay, we are out of time, and you have said you would come back, and I thank you for that. So before I let you go, we've got about a minute left. Is there anything else you wanted to share with the audience? You know, I would just say, you know, in today's challenging times, you know, if hopefully there's a lot you took away from this conversation, but, you know, I think – 
But I think, you know, as human beings, if we can build the muscle to pause, right, like to get off of this autopilot reactive mode and pause and lean into curiosity a little bit more, you know, just because we think a thought doesn't mean that it's true about ourselves, about other people. And so if, if we can just start pausing more and start leaning into curiosity a little bit more, um, I think that that's just such a huge, um, huge starting point. And yeah, like, please don't watch the news 24 seven. No, it's the worst thing for you. And I love that you've, you've mentioned curiosity multiple times here because once you have no curiosity and you're just kind of plodding through life, you're not, you know, looking for anything new. You're not looking for different variations of something that you already know. Why are you here? Yeah. Well put. Mic drop. Yeah. <laughs> well, listen, thank you so much for being here with me. Where can people find you? And where can they find your book? And thank you again for sending. I've got stickies all over it. I've got yellow stickies. I've got pink stickies in some places. Oh, yay. I love that. Well, yeah, so they can find our book, Rehumanizing the Workplace, on um, either through Conscious Capitalism, um, which is the publisher, or um, on Amazon or Barnes and Noble. And you can find me, my website is drdrrosieward.com um, it is where I have my podcast and blogs. And then my company website is Salveo partners.com. And you can learn about like our courageous leadership program and, and dare to lead. And then you can find me on LinkedIn. You can also find me on Facebook and Instagram, which is Dr. Rosie Ward and Twitter, Dr. Rosie. So we'd love to connect in any of those places and um, hear what you're thinking. Here's what's opening up. And if, and we'd love it. If uh, you get the book, please write a review. The reviews help and just hope that, um, hope that the work we're, I'm putting out there and we're putting out there is helpful for people. I mean, that's, it feeds my purpose and feeds my soul and having conversations like this. So thank you, Denise, for, for just the lovely conversation. And I, and I absolutely will come back. Oh, good. It has been my pleasure having you here. And I have um, an Amazon review about halfway written, so it will go up Yay. there today. Listen, thank you. And tell people how to spell Salveo really Salveo quickly. is S-A-L-V-E-O Partners. So SalveoPartners.com. Perfect. Okay, Rosie, it has been wonderful speaking with you. I've had a lot of fun, and I thank you for all of the terrific tips and advice. And it's been a serious conversation, but a really fun conversation. And I know yeah. that the audience is going to take away so many great points from you. So before we say goodbye, I would like to remind our audience to be sure to look for us on iTunes. And honestly, anywhere else you consume your business podcasts, the truth is you can't throw a stick on the internet without hitting your partner in Success Radio. So find us and take us along on your success journey. Rosie, thank you, and I look forward to having you come back soon. Thank you. My pleasure. Get your voice heard. If you would like to launch your own far-reaching podcast, contact Denise Griffiths at yourofficeontheweb.com and go to the podcast tab. 